Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening in today, and uh, sorry I missed you the last couple of weeks. Uh, I was on holidays for a week, and then I caught some pandemic thing while I was on holidays, so I took another week off because I care a lot about my colleagues, and it's a relatively small room, um, but I'm back. And I may cough my lungs out today during the show, but I am back in the studio with me now. First up today is the Honorary Mary Ann Thomas, who is the Minister for Health, the Minister for Health Infrastructure and the Minister for Ambulance Services. Mary Ann, welcome to Triple R. Great to be with you, Shane. It's great to have you in the studio. When your uh, people contacted me, I thought this is something that many of our listeners know is near and dear to my heart, which is the issue of pain in particular in women and what's uh, going on there in, in the state, well, not just in the state, but around the world. First of all, let's start with um, the information that you got last year from from government because you you ran a fairly substantial survey. Tell us about that. Yes, we did indeed. And in fact, Shane, we went to the election in 2022 with a very significant commitment to uh, address women's healthcare needs here in Victoria. And part of the process for the rolling out of our initiatives is to make sure that we're understanding what women's Mm. experience is. So we ran a survey Uh, particularly to understand women's experience of living with pain. And the survey brought in some really um, significant results that I think should be of concern to all of us. Uh, Around half of our participants reported that period-related conditions were of real concern to them and impacting their ability uh, to, well, their quality of life, their ability to participate in activities, and for some, of course, uh, to either get or hold a job. So yeah. it has significant um, economic ramifications as well. Yep. Another half reported to us that uh, they were still dealing with complications arising from pregnancy mm-hmm. or childbirth. But there are some great um, and quite disturbing sort of vignettes in our survey. Uh, of concern to me was women reporting that uh, talking to their doctors about what they were feeling or the symptoms they were experiencing as a consequence of menopause. One participant reported that she went in to talk about HRT and came out with a prescription for antidepressants. Right. Similarly, <laughs> another woman talked about um, uh, her undi- then undiagnosed endometriosis. Similarly, left the doctor's surgery with a prescription for antidepressants. Mm. So what this points to and what I think women know is that too often our experience of pain is not believed or it is challenged and that's simply not good enough. So the survey that we've done is only the beginning, Shane. It uh, It was designed to help inform further work and we're now taking submissions not just from women and their everyday experience, but also, of course, from clinicians and researchers. Yeah. So we can better understand the real scale of the challenge that we face here. So this is interesting to me because, I mean, this is something that some of our listeners will know is near and dear to my heart because my wife has gone through endometriosis in a very severe way for, you know, quite well, from diagnosis point, five years, but probably 20 years in total. 
um, since she first started having periods. And I've witnessed the interactions with clinicians and some of it has shocked me, to be honest. I mean, to be fair, there's a few who've been stellar, extraordinary, but it's not the norm. And there is a big there is a big gap there, and there is a big contrast between what I experience as as a male patient and what my wife experiences. I mean, how widespread is this? Do you think at the moment? I mean, this is not a Victorian problem, we should say, but it's something we can do something about in Victoria. No, absolutely right, Shane. In <clears throat> fact, it's not just an Australian problem; mm. it's a global problem, and uh, it's no real surprise when we think about our healthcare system and our. Uh, medical care has been designed by and uh, delivered primarily for men. And it's time to change that. Uh, We know, for instance, that when it comes to medical research, the body of knowledge that is relied upon uh, does not include women's experience. Women have been seen as unreliable subjects on account of our menstruation. Now that says to me that in fact we need to be yeah, yeah. we need to be the subjects of research and discovery because we menstruate. So yeah. our experience, uh, the way in which so many conditions uh, impact on our bodies, is quite mm. different because of those key sex differences. Yeah, yeah. So we need to be very alive to that. And there's a lot of work to be done. That's why when we went to the election, not only are we establishing the mm. pain inquiry, but we've made a commitment to establish a Women's Health Research Institute. It's time to better balance the books and make sure that we have research uh, that uh, where women are the subjects. Now, we're talking about conditions that impact us uh, by virtue of our sexual and reproductive um, uh, uh, organs, if, if mm. to, to describe it in that way. But we know that there are many other uh, conditions that impact us differently. So we, women will present very differently with um, uh, uh, with heart attack symptoms, yeah. for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. And yet this is still very poorly understood. Yeah. Women are more likely to uh, be afflicted by a range of autoimmune diseases that in turn lead to chronic pain. And yeah. and chronic pain, as we well know, can lead to depression. There's no doubt about that. So we've got to untangle this great kind of web mm. uh, to get to the heart of uh, what women what women's care needs are. And the first step to do that is to listen to women and believe women. Mm. Now, to, oh, sorry, Shane. No, no, as you yeah, as yeah. you as you can see, I'm very passionate <laughs> I, about I'm this. I'm glad to hear that. And yeah. as are you. Yeah. And I've got to say, since we announced this work, the response from women has been overwhelming. My colleagues uh, talked to me. The premier herself has said, "Women are coming up to us on the street and saying thank you." At last, someone is listening and at last Mm. there is a government with a commitment to do something about the pain that so many women are living with for so long. I mean, there is an enormous pressure. I'm going to put this on you, uh, Mary Mary Ann, because I think um, there is an enormous pressure here given that you currently have a premier who actually has endometriosis herself. So if if you and her as a team cannot do some really on-the-ground realistic things that actually help women in this state, the hope for me of that happening elsewhere is zero. You know, like you're never going to get a better set of circumstances than actually having a premier who herself understands, I I assume, I I hope she has had her endo treated effectively, but 
I, I would guess, like the majority of women, she's probably gone through the exact same you know, process of difficulty well, in getting I, it. I think you're absolutely right, Shane. And uh, uh, our commitment to this is uh, is sort of I can't. I ca- it's hard for me to express how committed I am to changing the game for women in this regard. Now, the Premier has shared her own experiences and her experience of endo like that for so many women Mm. um, uh, had an impact on her fertility. And But what we've got to do is sort of separate this out a little bit too because I'm concerned, as is the Premier, that endo is only then seen as an issue if it impacts fertility. Let's let's not worry about the... Let's not worry about the pain that's being experienced every day. As we know, it takes around seven years for a a diagnosis of endometriosis. Um, Disturbingly, it would seem that some medical professionals think that getting pregnant is the cure for endometriosis. Yes. And I want to make it clear that endometriosis needs to be treated because it is a painful condition um, that can do real harm to women's bodies and causes significant uh, has a significant impact on the way in which they yep. can experience life and enjoy life. So that's why we have to uh, mm. I, make I, a change. I, I'll tell you, I was actually in the emergency room with my wife at the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne when a clinician suggested pregnancy as a solution. That clinician was asked to leave the room by me. Mm-hmm. This is just three, four years ago. I mean, it's It's baffling to me that this is still happening. I mean, this is just out of date information. Like, mm-hmm. it's just no longer the the sort of model of care that we should be putting forward. So so the pain inquiry and the commitment to establish the Women's Health Research Institute are absolutely <coughs> critical to us being able to make a real difference yep. when it comes to endometriosis. And, of course, we have committed funding to uh, increase the number of laparoscopies that are able to yep. be performed every year. We've got a commitment there to deliver 10,800 of those. Now, of course, I understand that... Um, uh, laparoscopies are not always the treatment that is uh, indicated or is going to uh, deliver mm. the relief that women need. But we need to understand endometriosis much better. We need to diagnose it early and we need to provide a range of treatments. I know Dr Nisha Cott was just on on the previous program and I've had a real privilege of working with Dr Cott who, uh, when it comes to women's pain, she down at Peninsula Health at our sexual and reproductive health hub there, she understands, as do many doctors, that in fact um, IUDs can work as an effective uh, oh, part of a suite of a, a suite of treatments, if you like, uh, but an IUD can actually serve as a preventative. Now, the challenge for an IUD is they can be very painful mm. to insert. Not always, but yeah. they can be. Um, so Nisha is using the green whistle, familiar to anyone that's ever ridden in an ambulance, to provide temporary pain relief. Again, it goes to this whole issue, Shane, of pain. Women have been expected yeah. to live with pain. We've been told our period pain is normal. normal. Yeah, um, yeah. We're, we're told uh, that our childbirth pain is normal. Yeah. Um, we are told that living with chronic pain is just part of being a woman, and that's not good enough yeah, because yeah. men are not told that. 
Nope, we are not. Now, Mary, in terms of the inquiry, so he, I mean, you, you're talking about pain. One of the things that, that I know well from, from women that I know, and, and I think this is a, an experience we can all connect to, is that, you know, when you're in that level of pain, a day to you feels like a month. And when you're waiting for appointments, you're waiting for referrals, you're waiting for surgery, it feels like forever. Um, the new inquiry is reporting in December. I've run many inquiries in my career. Why on earth are we taking so long, given the majority of the answers, to be frank, on this issue are already out there somewhere in the world? We know what's, we know many of the things that are wrong, and we've already done the, the sort of survey last year. So you must have a lot of the information. So why December? Like, what's, what's the delay? Well, I don't agree that it's a delay. We've done a survey. We reached 1,700 women. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that women uh, right across Victoria have an opportunity to participate. And I'm particularly um, concerned that we, when we do this inquiry that we get it right, we do it once, we get it right, and that we ensure that we've got plenty of space and time to talk with all cohorts who uh, we want to hear from. So, for instance, women living in uh, rural and remote Victoria, we need to hear their voices. We need to hear and understand the voices of Aboriginal women. So we've got to make sure that we get it right. When you Mm -hmm. say that all the answers are out there, I dispute that because they may be uh, from, there may be many answers from a academic point of view from clinical researchers and so on. But I know that we have not captured the voices and experiences of, of girls and women. Yep. And we need to do that because, uh, and that's a complex task, yeah. but I want to make sure that we get it right. Yeah. Uh, we, so we do, there are some things that we know are working well. So for example, a, a spectacular example in the state for me, is the Julia Argaro Centre for Endometriosis um, that's based out of Epworth. Now, they provide comprehensive care managers. They've got great surgeons. It's privately funded by someone who went through a shocking endo scenario, you know, poor diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera, for for decades. Unfortunately, that person had the resources to fund the centre. Why why don't we duplicate that model that is working so well in that location? I mean, they can only service a very small number of women, but we know that works. So my wife has gone through that centre. It's spectacular because it deals with comprehensive care. And care management in this space of pain is an endless thing. I mean, you do not want to be doing it if you're struggling with some of these conditions. It is too much. So we could do that right now, Yeah. Well, we could certainly look to understand exactly how that model of care works and Mm. seek to duplicate it. One of the issues that's always a a concern of mine or something that I need to factor in is workforce availability Uh, because running a big complex public health system for every person in Victoria requires that we have a focus on equity at all times Mm. uh, but that we need to build up the workforce skills and uh, uh, that's why we've got a comprehensive $153 million package. So we are establishing 20 women's health hubs right across the state. Uh, We're doubling the number of um, sexual and reproductive health care nurse-led clinics that we yep. have. So, uh, you know, we are playing a bit of catch-up here, Shane, yeah. uh, but uh, I, I'm really looking forward to learning more about that model of care and looking at the ways in which yeah, it can I potentially be replicated. That would be good. One of the other things I was thinking about is some of the women you want to hear from, and I, and I get that you want to, you know, cast a broad net, which I, I think is really valuable, 
um, given they are the ones who are suffering the most, are going to be the potentially least likely to respond because of the burden that is the extra burden that we placed on them to to actually just hear from them. Is there any process to support some of those women? I mean, I I know there are some who, if you said, you know what, we'll just interview you over the phone. You're not going to have to write something up that you know takes you forever because they just there is just a a burden there that. Feel to me, it feels a bit icky that we're saying, you know what, our system's not functioning for you, and now we're going to ask you to help us fix it. There's a further burden there that we're adding on. Is there anything we can do to to alleviate that? Yeah, no, I I understand the the point that you're making, and it's a very valid one. That's why we're going to the women. Mm. So we will be conducting roundtables right around Victoria. So we're not expecting women to write. Some women will write submissions. Yep. I expect clinicians and researchers will write submissions. But to hear from uh, women and their lived experience, we need to go to those women. We yep. need to respect their time um, and their condition, the fact that they are living with pain. And so that's how we will do that. Again, I wanted to highlight um, the experience of women who, for whom English is not their first language is yet another one that I'm very mindful of. I know that many women feel very, uh, still feel very uncomfortable talking about uh, their bodies and their pain. Uh, So we need to create a safe environment for women to be able to open up um, yeah. and to talk to us about the pain that they are experiencing. So let's not forget that this comes off the back of centuries of stigma and shame that are associated with mm. women's bodies. I've got to point out to you that um, when I was elected 10 years ago, uh, it, it, it was interesting to see uh, as every every election since, more and more women from the Labor Party have come into the parliament, how that has changed the conversation in the parliament itself. So now uh, in the Labor Party, we have a majority of women uh, sitting on the, uh, on the in our seats in the parliament. Our cabinet uh, is a majority of women. So women's issues are now being taken seriously. And so we talk, we say the words that have never mm. been said in the house before. Right. Endometriosis, pads, tampons, menstruation, Are uh, they menopause. Scared? Are people scared hearing them? I, I, <laughs> I, I think that there's still some discomfort. Yeah. So, uh, but I've talked <clears throat> about this previously. Uh, when I was at school, talking about your period mm. was not something not that you, you did. Yep. Uh, having a period was a source of shame. Yep. You were held up to ridicule. You were teased. Uh, mm. And I know that things are changing, thank goodness, for younger generations. But still, many, many women, uh, you know, talking about menopause is something that for many women uh, is is something that we're anxious about doing because it sends a very direct signal that we are ageing. And yeah. we know that ageing in Australia, uh, that older women are subject to a whole lot of discrimination in the workplace. So there's a range of kind of complex historical reasons why uh, women's pain, why women have not been able to talk about their experiences and Mm. why the pain itself has not been taken seriously. But it's time to change that shame. Look, I'm glad to hear all this and I think some of it will be short-term things. As you say, you can invest in various centres and various clinical care options. I think you've got some long-term 
challenges ahead of you in terms of training. You know, some doctors realistically are going to have to have their training updated. Uh, we're also going to have to put things into training models to make sure that some of these biases are moved out. Absolutely. I, and, and we need to build a body of um, mm. research evidence that includes women. Yep. Now, the institute you talked about, uh, are we talking Doherty Scale Institute, you know, the Peter Mac? What do we, you know, because institutes need critical mass. This is an enormous area. I mean, there's, you mentioned how we, we do research at the moment, but there's, to me, there's two big categories. There's how drugs and our treatments and suppose, uh, and suppose um, all those things affect women differently to men. That's part one. Yes. But also there's a whole other conditions that just affect women. Correct. And so we need to focus on those differently as well. Um, so, you know, very different areas of research to which when you look at the amount of money in those research areas, it's very, very small, relatively speaking. So, Tell me, is it going to be a giant, big facility? That's what I want to hear. <laughs> uh, so the first step is to actually network all the research that is undertaken, okay. to map it and network those researchers. Yep. So I'm less interested in bricks and mortar, though mm-hmm. that will play a role, but it is making sure that we understand what research is being undertaken across our uh, world-leading research institutes yep. here in Victoria already, but also around the globe. Uh, so that is the first step, uh, but making sure that we have this institute that has the needs of women at centre will is an evolving mm-hmm. uh uh, an evolving idea, if you like, but one yep. that our government is committed to. So we've put $12 million on the table uh, to help drive the Women's Pain Inquiry, drive the establishment of the Women's Health Research Institute yep. and deliver scholarships um, to people that are working in women's okay. health already. Let's call that a start. <laughs> um, I think you and I both know how some of this, how much this costs. So that's a good start. The other thing I just wanted to finally uh, mention is around the issue of the diagnosis stuff and so forth. You know, sonographers, um, the ability to get ultrasounds, MRIs, very restricted at the moment and incredibly restricted in terms of getting the level of sophistication needed with those practitioners, um, with some of the conditions we're talking about. So you can't just go and go to any old ultrasound clinic if you have endometriosis and try and get some answers. You have to go to these specialist locations. I mean, it seems like, I mean, there's some really good work coming out of Ali Deslandis from Adelaide and so forth around this issue of how much more training we need to do in that space, in particular for areas like endometriosis, where often a negative report out of an ultrasound is deemed, you know, gold standard almost, when in reality, actually, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have endo. So, I mean, is there is there going to be a push in that? I mean, I know the inquiry is still to come, but is there going to be a push in that space to, to do more in terms of diagnosis in the state? Because we we really could ramp that up immediately. Well, well, we know that women's pain is either not diagnosed or underdiagnosed, mm. so we clearly have to change that. Um, it's great to be able to work in collaboration with the Commonwealth Government and, of course, Minister Jed Carney is leading the yep. Commonwealth's yep. work. Yep. And so to be able to work together on this means that we can bring all of our <clears throat> excuse me i've got yep. a cough too yep. We're both but we, we can bring all mm-hmm. of our resources together so this is about primary care and our health service system that the state runs but it's really important that our gps have the knowledge and skills and availability to those di- uh, access to those diagnostic tools because they're the key to yep. uh to helping us make sure that women are being 
listened to, believed and treated. Yeah, fantastic. Now, there's an endometriosis uh, day coming up at the the Julia Agro Centre Group are, are running in Feb. I hope you can come. Um, I'll send your colleagues the details. Because thanks very much, be Shane. Excellent to hear that. Um, Marianne, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, I appreciate this inquiry is, you know, open. So it's people open. can, they can submit now just yes. via the State Government Department of Health website. That's right. Just get on there. Um, uh, if you Google Women's Pain Inquiry, it'll come up. Yep. And uh, just get on there. Where we're, and as I said, we'll be out on the road because we know that to really hear uh, from women, we need to. We need to. We respect women. We yep. respect their time, and so we'll be going to women as well. Fantastic. Well, uh, when this all finishes up at the end of the year, I will uh, be checking back in with you and giving you a rough time about what we're going to change, <laughs> no doubt. Um, but thanks so much for being a guest no, on Triple. Thank- Thanks, Shane. Great to be with you. Folks, that was the Honorary Marianne Thomas, the Minister of Health. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio with me now is Dr. Madison Patton. Madison is the Senior Research Fellow in the Regeneration Theme of the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute. Is also an adjunct senior lecturer in the Sydney Medical School, is an adjunct senior research fellow in the Department of Pediatrics at Monash University. Madison, you've got quite a list going there. Yes, you did well with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've been talking about doing this interview for about three years. Yeah, that's right. What happened? Well, COVID happened. Oh, is that what it was? <laughs> and yeah. a big move to Melbourne happened. And oh, I, right. I did get to touch base with you over Zoom um, back a couple of years Sydney. ago. Yeah, that's right. But so much has changed now right. and um, lots more exciting research. So. so so, the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute, I think a lot of people wouldn't have heard about this institute. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so we were founded back in 2008 and it was all about trying to design areas of research of interest to families who might be affected by cerebral palsy or have children Mm -hmm. with cerebral palsy. And it was based on consultation with them that we started to recognise that more resources needed to be channeled into cerebral palsy research. So if you don't know, cerebral palsy is the most common physical disability of childhood and it's caused by damage to the developing brain. Mm. So back then, I guess it was really under-resourced, understudied. It's is, but the good news is, is that we're listening to families about where we should channel some resources there. And um, they told us that stem cell research and new novel therapies coming mm. up in this space would be really important to them. Right. And so since then, we've established roles like my one in the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute. And my job is to really understand what needs to be translated from the lab into yep. the clinic right. and start yeah. to explore new <clears throat> ways that we can help protect the developing brain. That's wild. So Talk me through what happens in the case of uh, an early brain being damaged in some way and then how that leads to a physical disability. Like what, what's, what is cerebral palsy in that sense? Yeah, so it's very complex and as you can understand, it's, it's an umbrella term mm-hmm. that um, really refers to a variety of different challenges or, or damage to the developing brain. So there's lots of different leading causes. Them. One of them is preterm birth. One of them is infection, right. birth asphyxia or even stroke, which is my right. area of interest. So people wouldn't normally think about stroke no. in terms of babies. Yes, that's right. I know it blows yeah. your mind. <laughs> yeah. How often does that occur? Yeah. Well, it's fairly rare, but why it's significant to cerebral palsy is that almost every baby that will have a stroke in Australia, um, this was back even 10 years ago and it's Hmm. still the case today, they will almost always have a permanent physical disability or something like cerebral palsy. How how do you... 
I, I'm just thinking about, you know, all the, the scenarios you've stroken. I've had yes. a family member who had a stroke and yes. there are some very specific things that are happening and they're often around communication. Yes. How do you know when a baby's having a stroke? This seems like a, a very difficult thing to mm. determine. Well, in the scenario that might occur, and this is where we're trying to develop new novel therapies for mm. this given scenario, but you might have had a really healthy baby taken yep. all the way up to a term delivery. They're taken home and they they thought to be otherwise well, but they might start to have some seizures. Right. And so they're very quickly then transferred into a neonatal intensive care setting. Yep. And the good part, but the unfortunate part is it's all about stabilising that infant, so mm. making sure that they can breathe and recover from the seizures, but then a brain MRI or a scan will show that they've right. had a stroke. Right. And so then over the next couple of months to years, um, coupled with the, the brain scan and obviously those risk factors that we've seen in that baby, yep. we know that they're at higher risk of something like cerebral palsy. And what was very fascinating in the cerebral palsy space is that a diagnosis of cerebral palsy might have only been given in the year or second year of life once we right. can be certain that they have this um, physical impairment. Yep. But now we can couple those risk factors that we see, say <clears throat> that stroke, <clears throat> with that MRI and then follow that baby really closely in the first few months of life. Hmm. to see how their motor develop, motor um, system Function, develops. Yeah. And then we can start to say they're at high risk of cerebral palsy, even at three months of age. Wow, that's incredible. And yeah. it means we get to intervene and, and they get to have far better outcomes than they once yeah. might have before. So let's talk about the parts there. So cerebral meaning the brain, so yes. you know the, how, how the brain functions and so forth. Palsy meaning? The motor impairment, okay. so how it... How it um, and, is, and is this the brain connect? So is the body impaired itself or is it the connectivity to the brain that's impaired? Yeah, so the, the condition itself refers to the underlying permanent brain injury. Right. As I said, it, it's so broad. And so when you start to think about cerebral mm. palsy, it might affect different parts of your body. It might be um, on a scale of one to five, quite mild to mm. all the way to being the very severest, which is where you might not be able to um, walk and you yeah. might need to be in a wheelchair. But the good news is, is in the last decade, we've seen a reduction in the rate of cerebral palsy by 40% right. and severity is being reduced as well with that because we're just being able to care so much better for babies and their mothers during development. Right. Um, and as I said to you before, we're able to get in earlier, detect it, and then hopefully intervene, which is where my research yeah. really comes into it. So stem cells. Yes. Now, I mean, stem cells, I suppose, I think we've gone through the period now where all the, the let me be frank, the bullshit stem cell companies that were yes. selling crap have gone. Yes. Like we've dealt with that. And I think Megan Muncy at, um, who's now, now, MCRI yes. has been like a shining beacon in terms of putting that to bed and, and yes. putting regulations in place that got rid of those nasty money-making evil companies. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're back to <laughs> let's see what we can actually do with yeah. stem cells because these things are incredible. So talk us through the thinking of the use of stem cells mm. with, with these sorts of brain injuries. Mm. Well, it's been so evolving. And as you said, I think before it was about trying to understand what we know about those classic stem cells. And so when I say that... Um, I'm talking about cells which can either go on to self-replicate and create more stem cells or differentiate into different tissues or cells of our body. Mm. And that's what we always thought of as a stem cell. And so, as you said, there was lots of people jumping into this knowledge or just that fundamental idea about what these cells could do. Yep. But now trying to apply that with a lens of what a cell therapy is, particularly for the developing brain, right. we now know so much more. And that's that probably in my field, <laughs> the one mechanism that's so important here is is 
called paracrine or trophic factors that okay. these cells can release. And it means that they're, they're environmental sensors. So we can apply them in very non-invasive ways. So say via a drip okay. and they affect and help to um, immune regulate or modulate our body system, which then indirectly helps support the brain. And so that in itself is a very new concept that is starting to be more and more recognized rather than these, say, really invasive ways that we might have applied a stem cell and then hope to, say, regenerate the brain. Yeah, because I, 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 the thing that comes to mind immediately for me is that idea of the blood-brain barrier. Yes. Saying, well, as, clearly, if you're just pumping them into the bloodstream, I, I would assume uh, the brain barrier is going to say no. <laughs> yes. Um, and so then you get into the whole thing of, you know, direct injection into the brain. Yes. and uh, You know, you don't want to be doing that on kids if yes. you can help it. So. Yeah. And so there's some scenarios where that direct transplantation of a stem cell, it might be required in the sense that we need to regenerate certain areas of the brain, which we can't regenerate in other ways. Mm. But the types of cell therapies that I'm most interested in, as you said, are the ones that can be applied um, to our bodies, to the bloodstream. So that's um, either via a drip or intravenously. And the neat part, as you brought up, is that these cells would probably not cross the blood-brain barrier. And when we give them via a drip, they actually mostly come into our lungs through this first pass circulation. And then they'll end up in our liver. And so new research is actually showing how beneficial that process is. So these stem cell types, say umbilical cord blood or mesenchymal stem cells, which are the ones that I'm mostly interested in, they will never reach the brain necessarily, but they're so potent immune modulators. And as I said, those environmental sensors that we're starting to understand now more how they have those acts more peripherally. Mm, Interesting. I, I find the whole idea of brain repair, like in adults. Yes, Ridiculously complicated, right? Yes. I mean, it's just, but in a kid's brain, and we've seen this with cancer treatments and so mm-hmm. forth, like that developmental phase, there's yes. so much going on. I mean, how do you even map that so that those changes over time when the brain is developing, it's, it's, uh, you know, responding yeah. um, to injuries as well, you know, yeah. it's, it's correcting in some ways. I mean, how do you even map some of that? You're right. It is so complex. And I think a great example is stroke. Um, What happens in babies is that we understand, particularly if it's an ischemic or a clot in the brain, Mm -hmm. we can start to map out. And it mainly comes from uh, preclinical or animal studies and trying to understand, I guess, what are those initial damages that happen to the brain, but then to the rest of our body when that clot occurs. But also, it's quite interesting to think about that injury where your brain has that lack of oxygen. Mm. Um, it, it stops getting a blood supply. But then that what we call a reperfusion injury. Right. So once that clot's removed, um, then what happens to the brain as it starts to get perfused again with blood or oxygen supply? And that in itself might even cause way more damage. And yeah. so we're getting these influxes of different um injury processes that occur. And as you said, they're they're quite extensive and ongoing. Hmm. And the interesting part is that they're coupled with those exciting times of neuroplasticity or or periods where your brain is still developing. And so we could definitely target them at very critical times to say, have a a therapy that does its best work. That's fascinating. Now, when you're preparing these stem cells, I'm always curious about what goes on in the lab. Um, Is this a one cell at a time you're going in there tweaking or is it, are we talking buckets? You know, buckets of chemistry. 
Yeah. So when I was back in the lab, which I'm not anymore, yep. but it was about trying to make these in-house stem cell therapies. So the ones that I were interested in were actually coming from the placenta at the time. Right. And it might mean taking one placenta or a number of placentas and, and trying to isolate or, or get one type of stem cell and you use different um, characterization methods. Yep. And eventually these cells are so good, as I said, at self-replicating that you can grow them out in the lab. Oh, right. yeah. And yep. you might think that on a smaller scale, so this is me just performing my own research in yep. a handful, say, of a small animal research, I might not only I might only need a few million of these cells so they can rapidly grow and multiply, say, in flasks. But as we start to scale our research, we're looking at the the need for what we call bioreactor grade right. manufactured stem cells. So you can imagine these as being quite huge vats, which have billions and billions of cells. And the beauty of that, and that's something that I can't do myself, yeah, so yeah. we absolutely have to um, partner with different commercial partners who have the expertise in that area. And the beauty of that is that now, once we get into clinical trials or human research, we can use that one vat to treat thousands of people mm. out in the population. And as you can imagine, that's so beneficial for us because it's standardised. Yeah. We can start to understand if results hold true from early phase yep. research. Good quality control. Great quality control. Yep. Exactly. So that's the type of research that we're trying to move towards. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have this image of it looking very much like a, a brewery. Oh, it is. <laughs> in terms of these big vats. Hit and, the nail on the head. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly yeah. Sure like I'm that. Yeah. One, but I always image that they look, you know, like the beers on this side of yeah. the lab and the, the cell generators are on this side yeah. of the lab. And, the know, cells don't, are don't mix different. them up. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, very cool. Now, um, just before you go, Madison, I mean, what got you into this area of research and like it's such a specific area of, um, yeah. of health that obviously has a, a you know, incredibly devastating effect on many families mm. but you know what got you in? I would say that at the beginning it was definitely that nerdy aspect of stem cell therapies. I yep. love that hardcore science but really early on it was an understanding that this area was very under-researched right. and there were families behind this who were asking for more work to be done. Mm. It was in the very first year, actually, of my honours degree that I met with families and they sat down in front of me and said, oh, look, I've, I've had a child who has had cerebral palsy or I've had a granddaughter who passed away from cerebral palsy and I don't want this to happen again. And right. families still come to me to this day to say, my child came through the neonatal intensive care unit and there was nothing that could be done to prevent their diagnosis of cerebral palsy. Yeah. So it's those families that keep me highly motivated yep. and I love working with those families every single day. Excellent. Well, Madison Patton, thanks so much for coming in to the show today and good luck with this ongoing work. It is uh, super important and I'm glad to hear that it's going in the right direction. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we'll be back in just a moment with our next next guest from the University of Melbourne. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me now is Associate Professor Stephanie Philbay, who is a Principal Research Fellow in the Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine in the Department of Physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne. Stephanie, good to see you again. Good to see you, Shane. Thanks we were, for the invitation. Yeah, we were just in an event on Friday, so it feels like we, we were just sitting across the table a few moments ago. We were, yes. Now, your work is fascinating to me because, um, first of all, let's we're, we're going to dive into the particular injury that you work on, which is the ACL injury. Mm-hmm. What's the ACL for us physics people? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'd expect 
potentially most of the listeners will have heard of the anterior cruciate ligament because it is quite a high-profile injury in sports players. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sam Kerr being the most latest uh, Aussie sports star to suffer an ACL injury. It's actually the main stabilising ligament in the knee. So it runs inside the knee joint and it plays a role in, essentially it joins to your shin bone, your tibia, to your thigh bone, the femur, and it stops them from sliding, gliding and rotating. Right. So when that tears or ruptures completely, you have a lot of excess movement in the knee and the knee can be quite unstable. What's the ligament made out of? Like, like what are we talking about here? Is it like a, you know, because, you know, Help me out. (laughs) Not a bio guy. Drop biology in year 11. Uh, You've got, you know, parts of the, there's bone, there's cartilage, there's flesh, you know, like muscle. What, yep. What's the ligament material? Sure. So it's it's collagen fibres. Okay. But the ACL itself is a very complex structure. Mm. It isn't just fibres running, holding two bones together. Right. It has proprioceptive fibres, which helps the brain know where the knee is in space. It also has right. uh, its own blood supply and it has separate bundles and it works in kind of an intricate uh, marriage, if you will, between the bundles so that one's tight whilst the other's loose and then vice versa as the knee moves throughout range of motion. So it's quite a, a complex structure, Yeah, which is why uh, you may have heard of ACL reconstructive surgery. So in Australia, about 90% of people undergo surgery. But what that actually does is it cuts out the ligament altogether. So it removes oh. the ligament and then it replaces it with another structure, usually made of tendon taken from beneath your kneecap or uh, your hamstring tendon. Okay. And then uh, holes are, are drilled into the tibia and the femur and then that new tendon's held in place trying to replicate the same position of the ligament in attempt to replicate the function of the ACL. Oh, this sounds fantastic. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Except... I, 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 because I, I have this yeah. image of the first person who ever sort of okay, opened yeah. up a knee... Mm. And going, holy shit, this is more complicated than I was expecting. Exactly. Yeah. There's and so it, much going on there. There is a lot. And I could go into a lot more detail. <laughs> it is a complex procedure, but it's what we call uh, arthroscopic. Right. Uh, so people assume it's quite non invasive because we're not opening up the entire knee joint, mm. which used to be done some years ago. Yeah. It's done through smaller incisions. Um, but the issue with ACL injury is whether you undergo surgery reconstructive surgery, or whether you're treated just with rehab, the long-term outcomes are typically poor. So 50% of people develop arthritis of the knee in just 10 years. But that's a real concern because the injury is most common in just children and adolescents. So you're talking about people in their young 20s having arthritis for the rest of their lives. And that has a great impact on their quality of life and they can develop uh, chronic pain and other issues. Yeah. Now, now you're working on a slightly different approach to surgery. So the... It sounds like surgery is the only approach in the way you describe it. So how else can you deal with the ACL injury? Yeah, so firstly, even before our research, I should say that there is another approach, which is rehabilitation alone, so just Mm -hmm. with exercise-based rehab. So the two high-quality clinical trials that exist found no additional benefit of surgery compared to just rehabilitation. Um, So there's only two trials, and they looked at pain, function, quality of life. But then what we wanted to do and what we published last year was to think, actually, who said an ACL rupture can't heal on its own? Right. Because this is an assumption. It's why, you know, a lot of people undergo surgery because it won't heal. It's completely ruptured. That's what I was told as when you say rupture, like, so if we we think of this as a couple of bits of spaghetti or, you know, like try to visualise it. What do we mean by a rupture? Is that a a cut? Is it a... I'm talking about a complete rupture. So if you had a a rope. Yep. And then both... 
it was one, it was one unit, uh, yep, fibres yep. run from the start to the end, and then it was torn. So those fibres, there's a clear gap, a complete rupture, because you can have partial tears where you right. can tear only some of the fibres. Okay. That's similar with any other structures, tendons, ligaments in the body. The ACL is yep. just the same. But what I'm really interested in is the full ruptures. Right. They're the ones that have the worst outcomes and mm. that we've assumed can't heal without surgery. Okay. Yep. We've actually assumed even though people with rehab can have similar outcomes, we thought that's because they were teaching their mind and body to cope without an ACL. And right. that's what researchers and clinicians have assumed. So we looked at this in clinical trial data and what we actually found is in those that were managed with only rehabilitation, mm. two years later on MRI, 30% had a healed ACL. Right. And not only that. So just that, grew but, back or? Sorry. Yeah. Well, grew, not growing back, but just as other structures in the body do. It just heal, repaired itself. Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. not all of them are healing and they're okay. not all healing exactly the same. Yep. Some are a little longer, some are a little thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, but we found that at least 30% had healed. And then really interestingly, those with a healed MRI, uh, healed ACL and MRI were doing better than those who had had surgery which we weren't right. expecting, and that's in terms of knee function, quality of life, pain, and symptoms. Do, do we know, you mentioned arthritis as one of the potential negative outcomes. Yeah. Where does that sit in that group? Is the arthritis primarily being caused by surgical intervention or yeah. the injury itself? Do we know? Uh, it's an interesting mm. topic. So mm. some some literature reviews have found no difference, whereas other reviews, including a review of all reviews, have found high rates of arthritis after surgery. Right. And there's specific studies that have followed people and found that after surgery, people have an increase in inflammatory markers that okay. persists. This is compared to non-surgical management, persists not just six months later, but it's still there two years later. And that may also contribute to the cascade of arthritis in the future. Yeah. So I always think of these things in terms of, I want to go through the least problematic pathway as a patient. Mm. So why would I not try the non-surgical intervention for a while? Yeah. And if it doesn't play out, then I'm back in the surgeon's table. Yeah. Or, or, is there, or is there a problem with the delay? No. So a secondary analysis of, of clinical trial data has found that delaying the surgical decision has no difference than having it earlier okay. on. In fact, there can be some benefit in allowing the knee to calm down mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. the swelling to calm down in yep. terms of inflammatory <clears throat> markers. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I should also mention, so what we've been now exploring is so that sort of flipped things on its head and thinking okay so the acl can heal is there anything we can do to help the likelihood of healing so we've been evaluating a a novel non-surgical knee brace and what that does is holds a knee in 90 degrees flexion with an acl injury and the reason for that is because that's where the two ends of that rope, if you will, are closest together. Okay. So yep. we've, we thought that that's where a bridge of connective tissue is most likely to form and therefore healing. Um, and then that brace is gradually adjusted in terms of knee motion over time up until 12 weeks and then it's taken off. Right, right. And so the initial idea was an orthopedic surgeon to actually try this brace. Yeah. And his son, uh, Dr. Tom Cross, based in Sydney, has now managed over 550 people with this bracing protocol. And uh, what we found is from the first 80 patients to go through the brace, 90% had a healed ACL on MRI. Wow. Yeah, so when so I say... that doesn't lie. I mean, there's one <laughs> thing about people saying, ah, I feel better. But, you know, like, especially when the inflammation goes down, you know, sometimes the pain changes and so forth over time mm. with the body. But, mm. but you're doing this with MRI. So presumably you take one at the start, one at the end, yep. and you see the change in structure. Yes, yeah. it isn't so black and white. But what we are seeing is, yes, they're completely ruptured, the fibres, 
a baseline, mm-hmm. and then at follow-up, they're continuous. So the fibres have rejoined. A group of those, around 50% so far that have the brace, look perfect as if it's never been injured. And there's another group that it may be a bit thinner than mm. a normal ACL or thinner in a bit, yep. or it may look not quite as taut, so it may be a little bit lengthened. So we don't yet know how that might impact on the nuances of knee function, mm. um, and we don't know whether it might remodel and improve more over time. But we need to keep in mind that the comparison here for most people in Australia is surgery, and that's not repairing or recovering the native ACL, which has this complex function and physiology. It's removing that altogether and putting a graft in. So that's kind of the comparison that we're interested in. How much of this, uh, Steph, is... I, I suppose the historical element here is caused by where the majority of these injuries are occurring, which is often in people are highly active in professional sports and so forth, or, or even amateur sports, sporting arenas, and want to get back on the field quick. Yeah. I mean, is that is that one of the drivers that said, you've got to have surgery and it's got to be fixed fast? Because what yeah. you're talking about is more patient patient. (laughs) Well, yeah. So that's the main downside to taking a non-surgical route. There's pros and cons of each. Mm. Um, It's the uncertainty. So if a proportion of people will go on and after three months or after trying the brace will not have sufficient knee function and then will be recommended surgery. So you're postponing the total recovery by about three months. And have keep you, in have mind. Have you checked the surgical delay times? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> is it really going a, private a different, some people, yeah, yeah, at an elite private. level when yeah, you're returning course, to AFL course. footy? You know, this yeah, is what they're thinking about. Yeah. And, um, but the thing is, only 55% of people actually return to competitive sport after an injury, after surgery. Right, right. Even though 99% want to and expect to. Yeah. So you see a mismatch here. So people yeah. assume that surgery is a fix and that it's a sure thing I'm going to have a great outcome. And often this is being fed by healthcare professionals, which which is what we found in our most recent survey of current practice in Australia. Um, So, yeah, that's not a realistic expectation either. So there's pros and cons to each, but you can never try surgery and then have a chance at healing your ACL naturally. That would be gone. But you can try non-surgical management and surgery is not going anywhere. It's still an option. It's uh, it's still a really good option that's sitting there on the table. Um, So in a lot of cases, I and um, other groups of experts and consensus statements advocate for most people trying rehab first and then considering surgery um, if you don't uh, gain sufficient knee function after an ACL injury. It's fascinating. I I actually do know one surgeon who I've used for various family members over the years who I would call him a non-surgery promoting surgeon which is really rare. Mm. Um, and he has on a number of occasions with family members of mine said, you know, now we're going to put that broken foot in the boot or we're going to do and hasn't gone immediately down the surgery route. And the outcomes have been spectacularly good. Mm. And in some occasions he has had to do a surgery. But, you know, like I think for me scientifically that minimal sort of pathway in terms of potential damage and potential outcomes um, should be the default. Yeah. And I just think uh, giving all the science there around what's available to patients I think is really important. It's, it's, it's fascinating you've been doing this work. So well done. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if I ever, I, I'm not sporty enough to damage an ACL, I hope. Oh, it's um, not only sport, you know. It can be walking your dog and stepping uh, on the... <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I'll hopefully not. So. 
Uh, it's in the last minute of the Weinstein and Go-Go. I have to say a huge thank you to our guest today. You just heard from Stephanie Philbay from the University of Melbourne. And before that was Dr. Sorry, Associate Professor Stephanie Philbay. And before that was Dr. Madison Patton from um, Monash University and the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Institute. And of course, at the start of the show, we had the Minister for Health, the Honorary Marianne Thomas, talking about the inquiry into women's pain. And uh, I suggest anyone who wants to submit something on that, get online and just do a search on inquiry into women's pain on this state government website. And you'll find all the details that you need about what is going on there, hopefully leading to some pretty substantial changes in the near future. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Remember, science is everywhere and we'll chat to you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.